Welcome to the Flourishing After Addiction podcast. I'm Carl Eric Fisher, an addiction psychiatrist and bioethicist at Columbia University and a person in recovery. In this podcast, I'm seeking out fresh perspectives in the world of addiction and recovery by doing deep dive interviews with people working toward flourishing after addiction. People like scientific researchers, artists and writers, spiritual teachers, and more. My goal is to learn from their experience and wisdom, seeking out practical lessons that can help us all work toward thriving and well-being, while still respecting the depth and nuance of addiction and recovery. If that's interesting to you, head over to my website. I have other resources and materials about addiction and recovery, and sign up for my newsletter and you'll get a free guide I made about the many paths of recovery. You'll also get updates about books, research papers, and other things I'm studying and exploring, and you can find all of that over at carlericfisher.com. So, Not much housekeeping today. I just wanted to say I'm really encouraged and grateful for all of the kind responses that people sent in after my last interview with Brian Hurley. Really, the feedback and the commentary is really rewarding and motivating for me. And it's also just really helpful. It helps me focus on what matters the most. And I've just really treasured that interaction. Along those lines, people subscribed to my email newsletter will already know that I'm going to be publishing a series of posts on recovery on Substack starting in January. If you don't know it, Substack is a sort of online blog and newsletter that I've written about in my email newsletter, and I've had some guests that are involved with it and highlighted the work of people like Awais Aftab, a a good friend now and a philosopher of psychiatry. And I've, I've just gotten excited about the prospect of doing some longer form writing, not just to have a place to publish it and have it out there in the world, but also to expand the ways that we can connect. As someone who has increasingly read Substack over past months and even years. That's what I like is the the sort of lively places where folks go to hang out and share comments and info. So I'm hopeful that it can be a way that also some of you can interact with one another and learn from one another and have a shared space for connection and motivation and accountability. So keep an eye out for that and subscribe to my newsletter if you haven't already. And I'm really looking forward to that next phase of this experiment. For today, though, it's my great pleasure to be speaking with Jason Luoma, who's a PhD psychologist, researcher, entrepreneur, clinician, and psychotherapy trainer in Portland, Oregon. And in particular, and the reason I wanted to have him on is he is an expert on shame, self-criticism, and stigma, particularly in the sense of the interpersonal functions of emotion, and with a special focus on addiction. And aside from just being a fantastic researcher and clinician, he has co-founded the Portland Psychotherapy Clinic, which is just a really fascinating center that works on a social enterprise model to fund clinical care and research. And we get into that a little bit as well, which I think will be an interesting conversation for those of us involved in the healing professions. And then, of course, we talk about shame. We talk about working with people who feel excluded, marginalized, and separate from others, how to help folks with shame, uh, a psychological formulation of addiction in the context of some major acceptance and commitment therapy themes like cognitive flexibility and experiential avoidance, and then just the nitty gritty of how to work with shame, including online and written resources, how to treat work with shame as a learning process, how to work with our relationships with ourselves and internalized stigma, and ultimately using pain as a signpost toward meaning and purpose. It's a really rich episode. I think it's one of the most profoundly practical episodes I've done, and I'm really happy with how it turned out, and I really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jason Luoma. All right, I'm here with Jason Luoma, psychologist, scientist, and clinician. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to be here. So Jason, I'd love to start off with the personal relevance. How has addiction touched your life or the lives of people around you? Yeah, well, I mean, the way that I really got involved with addiction was my work, my research, my clinical work with addiction was really through a deep caring for people who feel excluded, for people who are marginalized, who are disadvantaged and prejudiced against by society. And I had experiences around people with addiction who encountered those sort of things. And I really wanted to reach out to those folks who are in those kind of dark places of exclusion and feeling so separate from others. 
So that was really kind of the thing that connected me is this kind of larger interest in things like stigma and shame and people who find themselves in places of extreme judgment by society. And we all, we know that people with substance use problems, they have, they're amongst the most kind of condemned folks in the U.S. Right. So it was experiential. It was just sort of like a heartfelt drive to serve a particular population. Yeah, not necessarily because of personal addiction in my family or particularly close friends or things like that. I mean, I've have had I've known people with addiction of various sorts because it's just so prevalent. But it was really more out of this this interest in helping people who feel just a lot of shame and and feel really kind of on the outside in society. And so people with addiction largely kind of fall in that area. Mm-hmm. Well, I can hear from your description and see from your published work that it's meaningful for you. That's been a through line in your work to work with shame in particular. And I'm looking forward to getting into that. But we realized briefly when we chatted before the recording that I don't know exactly what Portland psychotherapy is. And uh, I also notice in general, people who are really in the act psychotherapy world, they tend to lead with their heart and a lot of the books have a little preface where they talk about their core values and how that feeds right. into their work. So I, I thought I would just invite you to talk a little more about that and the kind of way you've set up your scientific and research and clinical life with this enterprise. Sure. Yeah. I think of porn psychotherapies as a social enterprise and people have heard of B Corps. We're basically like a B Corp, but not officially a B Corp. And we provide a lot of clinical services like a group practice or clinic might do. But the big difference for us is that none of the profits come out of the organization to the owners. All the profits stay inside the organization and they go to fund the research we're doing. They go to fund uh, low-fee services. They go to fund scholarships for the trainings we do, particularly for people from disadvantaged groups or people of color. And basically have constructed this organization of we're getting close to 30 employees now over the last uh, 15 years or so, so that we can really fund some decent research and we can do some good work. And most recently started, expanded to take Medicaid as part of this commitment to working with disadvantaged folks for the first time. And I mean, it's if anybody's ever tried to work with Medicaid, it's a lot of work to get to where you can have all the bureaucracy in place to do that. And so we're glad to have done that. And to me, it's part of that larger mission to try to reach people who are typically excluded. And so even in the way I've constructed my research, part of the idea was to do research that will not be funded. So we try to specifically to, to do research projects that the government is never going to fund because, well, let the people who are at the big hospitals do those. Why would I bother with that? And I'm in a position where we actually have some funding line through the business to be able to to do projects that um, otherwise won't get funded. So I've been able to participate, for example, in uh, research on stigma that wasn't funded, substance use stigma that wasn't funded externally because we had our internal funding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that probably answers a good portion of my next question because I was wondering sort of the why, getting back to the personal values, because you, people can look at the show notes to see you published extensively in ACT and you've participated in major randomized clinical trials and surely a sort of NIH funded or otherwise major grant funded traditional academic career was open to you. So was that mainly it or was there another set of motivations around doing taking this non-traditional path? I'll go back to the beginning. Yeah. So the start of this was that I was a number of years out of grad school. I had been funded on uh, grants, soft money grants for a number of years and I'd have hit a point of choice where I had to pick where I was going to go in my career and was trying to decide between the traditional academic positions and a clinical psychology program to go the kind of grant chasing route of being someone who's perpetually writing grants and trying to get uh, federal funding. Or I had this kind of odd idea of, could we create a business that actually did this? And some of these ideas of B Corps and social businesses were, they were around back then, but they weren't as well known. 
And I'd stumbled across those ideas and basically thought, hey, why don't I give this a go for a couple of years, try to start a business, see if we can conduct some decent research, get some funding for that. And gave it a go for a few years. And with the idea being that if, if we couldn't make it work, I'd pivot back into applying for academic jobs or you know going back and starting to write grants because I had connections and things. And uh, it seemed to work well enough after a couple of years that I was able to create this business and be able to stay in Portland, in Oregon, which was part of it as well as ideally I wanted to stay here. And as people who've ever been involved in academia know, you typically have to go where the job is. So you usually don't get much of a choice over where you're going to live. Mm. And so part of it was wanting to stay local so and be able to be both involved in clinical work and training and research. And so, so yeah, it's just apparently I was recently... Apparently, I'm someone who kind of tends to go my own way. I haven't really appreciated it fully, maybe that I'm like that. But I was recently talking to a colleague friend from that early period. And he he told me, yeah, you are like this guy is like this hippie guy who's like, I'm going to create my own business to do this. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that I was, I didn't know that I came across as like such the dreamer, sort of unconventional person at the time. But apparently I've been that way in some ways that I do tend to take paths that are not the established paths to try to move forward in my career. I want to get done what's important and work with people that are good people and try to have a well-rounded life and try to create help sustain a well-rounded life for the people who are around me and part of my community or part of the you know, group I work with. And we've tried to create a business that has a good quality of life for the employees, provides great services for our clients, and also allows us to be able to do research. And to me, research is supposed to be an altruistic act. You publish the papers and theoretically they're really available for everybody. And so in that sense, it should be an altruistic act. It should be giving away everything you do. Mm. And so ultimately, that's really what it's about. It's about hopefully helping society. That's great. I, I think it's it's really useful because I know a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are in a training program or thinking about how to engage with the field of addiction or just human flourishing in general. And I can tell you as someone who went to a major research institution for my training, it's a you don't get a lot of models for what you're doing. So it's great to hear. And I, I hope it's inspiring to others too. So let's get into the meat of it though, because I want to make sure we talk about the psychology of it all. So before we jump into shame or other specific topics, I was hoping that you could lay out just how you would frame addiction, the phenomenon of addiction, which may be heterogeneous and it may be messy, but just in general, how you would frame the phenomenon of addiction in act terms from the standpoint of concepts like psychological flexibility or experiential avoidance, or other words, like what's a top level way of translating the act ideas to people's experience of addiction? Or, yeah, I could maybe even also talk about the issue of shame in addiction uh, more specifically, which is really where I'm more focused. But addiction is quite complicated. And the factors that lead to addiction are varied. And actually focuses on the psychological aspects of it, the parts that have to do with your experiences you've had in your life and kind of the behaviors you've engaged in and, and how life has kind of led you to think the way you are and feel the way you do and respond the way you do, including people using substances. And an ACT perspective Again, this is all going to be oversimplified, but just to be as general as we can, a lot of addiction has to do with people wanting to alter their experience. They have painful things that happen to them, sadness or depression or shame or anxiety or fear, emotions they don't like or thoughts about themselves like self-criticism, I'm worthless or there's something wrong with me or I'm damaged. And they often want to do something to escape that. They want to feel better. Sometimes it's not just that they feel bad, but they just want to feel better than they do. So it's, you don't maybe feel bad, but you want to feel good. So there's that component of wanting to alter what you feel and what you think. And it's a natural human emotion. And for some people that be, or natural human motivation, for some people that goes more to an extreme and everybody does it, but people with addiction do it through substances and then there's all kinds of downstream effects that can happen when you 
use a substance a lot. And, and so you have that component that's about ex- what we call experiential avoidance. But then that's also fed by the kinds of thoughts, feelings people have, and the ways people get caught up in that thinking, the explanations that they have for their behavior, the justifications, the reasons, the stories. I can't do anything about this. I'm helpless. I can't change. This is who I am. And people buy into those stories and buy into those thoughts and kind of get caught up in them. And they can't see the possibilities that are outside of that. And those the stories about ourselves, and if they do anything, they tend to just kind of maintain what we're already doing. And so if you're stuck in addiction, they tend to maintain your addiction. And so the result of those things are that people kind of develop these patterns of living and behaving, acting that are out of contact with what really matters to them. People can get so caught up in the day-to-day, getting by, feeling like they're surviving, just managing the withdrawal, managing just being able to feel like okay enough to function that you lose sight of what really matters in life, whether that's your relationships or meaningful work or your spiritual journey or your health. And people can get really disconnected from that and the consequence of getting really connected, disconnected from really matters is that one, you tend to get into a lot of unhealthy patterns, things that really don't work in the long run. Also, you get disconnected from what, what really matters. You get disconnected from your sources of meaning, your sources of purpose. And for humans, ultimately, those are really our biggest sources of, of motivation. Our biggest sources of motivation aren't really about wanting to feel good. Those are important sources from moment to moment. Give me a choice between I'm tired and give me a choice to t- have some coffee or not and be tired. But my kid running across the street in front of a bus, and I'm going to pick grabbing, like pulling my kid out of the street before having that cup of coffee. And so the important thing is going to win over the feeling better thing if they're put right up against each other. But people get disconnected from those sources of meaning and caught up in, in the pain and in trying to control the pain often. And that kind of whole mix causes just a huge amount of distress. That's great. Thanks. I think a lot of people might, you know, folk psychology associate addiction with the experiential avoidance piece. They might say, oh yeah, people are trying to modulate their experience. That sort of makes sense. But I like how you break it down into different levels, including the stories about the self and also meaning and values as well. Because I think that the way that those stories about the self can maintain negative patterns and how disconnection from meaning and values can play into the phenomenon, I think is is something that is not as commonly recognized in the sort of less compassionate gut responses to people with addiction. And one of the things that's useful to rounding out a truly humanistic, multi-level understanding of what addiction is. And And sometimes to the point where it can be people with addiction can be sort of treated like they don't have values or they don't have a sense of meaning or a moral compass or something like that. And it's just not true. And but what can happen is that people who are deep into addiction or just in, in general can get disconnected. We all get disconnected from what matters in various ways during our day and during our lives and different periods of our lives. And, and when you're caught up in a substance that kind of, kind of make your thinking not clear or just make it so hard to get out of that focus on getting by make it harder to think of that bigger picture. But that bigger picture is so important. Mm-hmm. And on that note, in reading your work, I had a thought about a previous guest of the pod, Owen Flanagan, who's a philosopher who's also a person with addiction in recovery from Duke University, who's written about shame. And he's argued that shame is adaptive and useful and that we're too superficial about shame. People are sometimes dismissive in the pop psych descriptions of shame. And before I really dug into your work, I thought, oh, maybe there's like a sort of conflict here. And I was going to ask you how it's opposed, but you're shaking your head now. You write about how shame can be adaptive. Sometimes it's a double-edged sword. And I'm wondering if that's part of the values piece that shame sometimes can be adaptive in terms of pointing toward those values for people with addiction or otherwise. I was wondering how those two things connected, but there's a way that shame and values might come together. Is that right? Or am I getting close to it? Absolutely. We actually published 
fairly recently the largest meta-analysis of the relationship between measures of shame and substance use. And we pulled together dozens of studies trying to look at how those were associated and the correlation between shame and substance use, like rates or intensity of substance use, was exactly zero across all those studies. There's zero correlation between how much shame you feel overall across the population and the amount of substance use you engage in. And it doesn't mean, I want to also, just because there may be listeners out there who feel deep shame and feel like that does contribute to their substance use and that doesn't mean that that's not also true because it is true that people do their shame can contribute to substance use and at the same time it doesn't always and so shame on the one hand i think most people are familiar with the narrative about how you, know, you feel shame and then you want to hide and you want to withdraw and that is true that is part of shame there are the research shows there's two there are kind of two motivations linked to shame so one is to hide, to protect yourself, basically, because shame is this emotion that evolved basically as a way to signal the, the threat of getting kicked out of the group, of, of the tribe, if we think about these kind of like earlier small groups. And, and it served to repair. It served as a, a way to maintain connection in the face of kind of behavior on the part of people that was like egregious and damaging to the tribe. And so part of that involves potentially motivating you to hide the behavior. <laughs> but it also, because if you can get away with it, then you're not going to get kicked out of the tribe. You're going to get kicked out of the group. But also it can motivate you to, to show contrition, to show that you did something wrong. And if people think about what a shame look like, it looks like that kind of like rounded shoulders, the hangdog kind of expression. And what it shows people is I at some level, it's, I know I did something bad. And so when shame's functioning well, it signals to others that you did something that was kind of, was like harmful to relationships, harmful to community. And then it can allow to actually help facilitate repair, community kind of relational repair. It can actually facilitate people trying to regain kind of a positive sense of self in the eyes of other people and themselves. And so shame has this kind of two components. It has this piece where depending upon where you're feeling the shame and what it's about, it, it may not be very adaptive and it can result in you wanting to hide and withdraw and then subsequently maybe use substances to try to suppress it. But on the other hand, it can result in, if it's depending on where, where the shame is and how it's experienced and what the kind of community response is to it, it can result in people kind of actually moving towards repair and regaining kind of positive sense of self in the eyes of others and their community and their relationships. So it's a kind of dual-edged emotion, which is pretty unique amongst emotions. Most of them have kind of one motivation tied to them. And shame has this kind of dual motivation. And I think that's why it's, it can be both really problematic because it's deeply painful and it's also can be kind of tied to like say your sense of self in a way that makes it very hard to have it be useful and then it can sometimes be a really adaptive emotion depending upon the context mm -hmm. i can talk about this for hours mm -hmm. no it's really helpful i think it is really helpful in terms of describing how like the objective might not be to banish shame or to eradicate shame or to yep manipulate your experience in the same way that, that a lot of act and then i would say a lot of other mindfulness oriented or contemplatively oriented psychotherapies might be but just to ground it in somebody's possible experience let's say somebody is suffering with shame and let's say they're, they're conscious of that and they, they identify it as a problem and they come to you as a psychotherapist and they say maybe they're they, like I have this working model of myself that i'm inadequate and i'm damaged and i'm broken and just my internal critic is at a million decibels in my ear all day long. And I heard you on this dumb podcast where you said that <laughs> you're not supposed to manipulate it or change it in any way. And maybe it's helpful, but so how am I actually supposed to work with it? First off, I would say if someone actually comes into therapy and they're already aware that they're feeling shame and they can say, I have this critic, they're already really kind of in a good spot. Like most people come in with deep shame, don't even see it. They're just, they're not like, I have shame. They're just like, I'm broken. 
Uh-huh. I'm damaged. I'm a toxic person. I'm evil. There's no awareness that's thinking. There's no awareness that's a viewpoint that they're taking on. It's just the seeming reality that I'm that there's something deeply and fundamentally wrong with me. Like I'm a broken object. Yeah, and, that's a good point. I guess I should say I was constructing a, a hopelessly abstract thought experiment, but I think that's well. A, like, but, but I did want to point that out though because it yeah. kind of helps. Yeah. It helps sort of ground it in the beginning of what you do because most people come in just feeling broken and they don't see that this is actually like thinking that's happening here. There's a lens that I'm looking at myself through and they can't see it and they may have a critic, but they don't, everybody has a critic, like an internal critic, but they often don't see the critical thinking as critical even, or if they don't see it as problematic, they just see it as useful. Like I need to kick my butt to kind of get myself in line because I'm such a screw up. And so like, I need this kind of harsh, you know, taskmaster that's going to help me straighten out. Mm -hmm. And so, or be better person to be kind of a gentler way of it. And so a lot of the initial work is actually about helping people to start to kind of disembed from that, that way in which it, shame and and self-criticism present themselves as just a bad person or a damaged person or a flawed person and to be able to see actually what's happening is you're having thoughts and you're having views you're having a voice that's showing up and it's saying things to you and and that's really influencing you and that's not the same as you being damaged or not and in some ways the question of being damaged or not i would say is like not such an important question like you could say in one hand like in one hand, you could say we're all damaged and we're all very damaged, you could say. And on the other hand, you could say none of us are damaged, that we're all whole, complete people. We're humans that are living lives and we are, by our nature of being human, we are whole. And that in some sense, like none of us are damaged. And so, to, so it's kind of not a helpful question in a way, are my damaged or not? Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do is help people to see that there's this ongoing thing that's happening, this ongoing pattern of thinking, this ongoing pattern of living and feeling that is really affecting them. And to start to understand that pattern, to start to gain a bit of distance from that is, is one of the earliest things that we do when a person comes in. Mm-hmm. But th- th- I have a whole treatment that I do, but that's just kind of see the earliest steps. No, that's helpful. No, that's good. And I think a good clarification because I think that probably squares anecdotally with my own clinical experience that it's almost hard. Maybe later I'll ask you if we have time, like from the other direction, if people are really stuck in a conceptualization of self, how do you work with that? But I, I want to get back to that first question first, which is once somebody has a little bit of recognition or they have the intuition that working with shame in some way could be useful, then how do you actually work with it? What's a way of actually engaging with it? Maybe even. Yeah if we're thinking about it, stuff that might be employable for people even outside of a therapy context, like a, a frame or a practice or a actionable thing. Yeah. I'm, I really think, I mean, I'm thinking about how to work on maybe doing some writing for the public, but I'm really someone who thinks about how do I work with this in therapy. And one of the first things that we do is try to help people to start to have a place where they can see that their experience makes sense. And, and this is something people could do. We have, a, this is a therapist, there's a website mostly for therapists, but it's actwithcompassion.com. And there's an exercise on there that we have people do, which is this history of shame, history of events that contributed to shame and self-criticism. And we have people go through and think about different places and relationships in their lives and try to get a sense of like, where did this come from? Like, why am I like this? Why do I feel so bad about myself? Why do I, why am I so self-critical? Why do I dislike myself so much? And to try to start to get a sense of like, that this came from somewhere, because one of the most pernicious things you see in people who are really deep into shame or highly self-critical is that they have this extra layer of, it doesn't make sense that I'm like this. Like I shouldn't be so shame. I shouldn't have so much Uh shame. All right. Shouldn't be so self-critical. Like my life wasn't that bad. Nothing really bad happened to me. I can't tell you how many clients over the years I've had who've come in 
where their initial story was, nothing really that bad happened to me. And then we do this exercise or we do this work. We, I don't in therapy recommend people spending like session after session talking about your path, about your childhood and like months of that. But there's some period where it can go back and start to look at those early formative events through your childhood and your adolescence. And I've had many clients who come in with, it doesn't make sense of them like this. And then we go back and we do this exercise and they start to see, oh, like I was sexually assaulted five times as a child or my brother hated me. And I, I grew up living with a brother who seemed to hate me and bullied me throughout like chunks of my childhood. And I was sexually assaulted and this happened and this happened. And, and I had this, like in high school, I was an outcast and then in, and then here as, and we go through and it's, it seems almost inevitable that we start to unpack that there are these, you can start to see in their childhood or in, and in their adolescence, usually sometimes it, it starts later, but most people kind of, these things develop pretty early. They start, you can start to see there's social context, there's family context, there's relationship context, there's events that happen that kind of be like, wow, if anybody experienced these things, this is what would happen. They'd come out of it feeling pretty bad about themselves, or they might internalize this view that other people aren't trustworthy, or other people are critical, or that other people don't value me. All of these things that feed shame. And that experience of kind of starting to see, oh, this makes sense that I feel like this and starts to help people to kind of see one, it's not that I'm broken. It's that I'm ha- I've learned to have thoughts like I'm broken. It's not that I'm necessarily that I'm bad. It's that I've been taught that I'm bad. I've been like, there are events that have happened that have sort of told me I'm bad. And now I have feelings like that. And I have thoughts like that. And that kind of early, that early process of starting to build a to really see it for what it is. So I think exercises like that, we have handouts also on the website where people can kind of go through and fill out forms about shame and like starting to unpack how shame works in their lives, starting to see that, experience that in their life, kind of see, oh, that's shame. Because oftentimes shame is one of these emotions that people don't even realize they're having much of the time. And so they can't actually see it. They just are look kind of living from it. And that's very different if you're living kind of out of shame versus be able to observe it. Oh, here's shame. Then you have more of a choice of what you're going to do next. Mm-hmm. So I'd say those are some of the first things to start to build some awareness of an understanding of your shame and your self-criticism. And then from there, there's it kind of opens up options. Find, find therapists that can work with you around that. Or you could, you know, there are workbooks and things that might be helpful or there are various practices. I'm a big fan of loving kindness meditation. There's research that suggests that could be helpful for mm-hmm. people who are really self-critical. So there's a lot of paths that people can take to mm-hmm. sort of move forward. It's a good sampling. I'll link to that and in the show notes. And I also have the reflection that maybe this is a way of developing compassion toward the shame as a pattern, right? It could, it strikes me that people could even have experiential avoidance or some sort of aversion or resistance to the fact that they have shame and that impairs the ability to be with it and just notice it in the first place. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. Yeah. yeah and of ultimately developing more compassion for yourself and kindness towards yourself and others is part of the path. I don't often lead with that with folks who are really more shame prone because they've often already been kind of presented with that idea. You need to have more compassion for yourself. You need to be. And so the, that kind of as an initial message is often kind of leads to a sense of failure because uh-huh. they've already tried it. And if you kind of start with from there, it's, well, yeah, I, I've already tried that and I, I know what happens. I'm going to fail. I can't, I'm not capable of it. And so especially for folks who are more stuck starting with kind of a focus on my take on this is like starting with a focus on compassion will often lead people to kind of initially feel like they're overwhelmed Mm. and and like more of a failure. But I mean, that is a context of it, but that's for me, at least maybe not so much the place to start. No, it makes sense. It sets up a sort of instrumentality where you're trying to do a thing to get a change or to change how you feel and 
that can set up some unhelpful expectations. And I like the judo. It feels like a judo move to me. It's you may want to change this shame, but first let's really try to see things from its perspective and see how it's been trying to help you so far. Well, I'm gonna, I, yeah, I'm really, I mean, yeah, there's some of that. And I guess one of the most important things early on is people see their, usually see their shame and their self-criticism as a, like a, uh, an ally, even to the extent that it's uncomfortable and difficult, they're usually quite attached to it. And so you go right towards, you need to be more compassionate. It's going, no, I don't, because I mm -hmm. need this. I'm a bad person and I need to be kept in line and in some version of that, or I need to do better when I need to excel. Or And so oftentimes the initial part is actually starting to just to understand the the downsides or the kind of the ways in which shame and self-criticism, especially self-criticism, can make things worse. And starting from there, compassion can kind of emerge from that, starting to see how how hard things are and how the kind of self-critical response to try to deal with it actually can make it worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that gets back to my other question, actually, because that sounds like a perfectly reasonable strategy, but it requires a sort of frame shift. It requires people to buy in to the notion that this is a thing to work with. And yeah, yeah. I was wondering, like, when people are so fixed in the notion, and there might be people listening right now thinking, I have a lot of good reasons to feel shameful, and this is something Absolutely. really protective. And yeah. what would you say to people who really are not on board with that reconceptualization? I mean, they do have good reasons. People always have good reasons for feeling shameful or being self-critical. Like that's part of how it works. And so I'm definitely not going to argue with that. Mm -hmm. There's lots of reasons why people feel that way. And often, and we all have, to the extent that it's because I've done bad things and stuff like that. Yeah, that's that part of it as well. And, and so I guess trying to imagine the scenario what I try to do is help people to get in contact with just how painful it is and how stuck they are and to start to explore how that works. And really that's kind of the beginning is just exploring how all that works. So if they have this, if they're in this position of, I need this and I am really bad, that's where we start is from well, what happens when you kind of take that position, when you align with that viewpoint of that thinking of, I am really bad. I deserve to be punished. What are the effects? How does that affect you? How does that, where does that lead you? What kind of outcome does it have? How does it feel to respond to yourself in that way? And we start from there. We start with, we really focus on their experience and what, they've seen and what they've experienced because I, I don't really I don't want to be someone where it's my expertise or I have the truth and I'm telling somebody what's what the way is or the way it should be. I'm really trying to help them to look in their experience and see how it works in their life. And so if shame's really working, like shaming themselves or blaming themselves as a strategy, then keep it up. Good for you. And yet, I think many people find that, especially when it's excessive and it's rigid, it doesn't really help too much. And that there are more flexible ways, more adaptive ways of responding to yourself and being with yourself that it can work better. One of the things that's often surprisingly simple but helpful for folks around shame of criticism is to just talk about what kind of relationship would they choose to have with themselves. Mm. Most people have never really thought about that. Like if you were to think, they've, they maybe thought about what kind of relationship do I want to have with my friend? What kind of relationship do I want to have with my mom? What kind of relationship do I want to have with my child? They've often thought about that. But many people, surprise, sort of surprising in a way, have not really ever thought, what kind of relationship do I want to have with myself? You're with yourself more than anybody else. And yet, how many people can kind of actually say that in, in a sentence what would it be if you were to say what kind of relationship do you want to have with yourself if you could choose for really up to you from a place of choice what are you trying to foster 
in the way you live with yourself, in the way you respond to yourself. This person that goes through life every day with you, who suffers, who struggles, who does good things for people and is helpful to people and is hurtful to people. This person that you're with every day, who do you want to be to them and for them? And it's a surprisingly kind of simple question, but also one that many people really haven't thought of or really reflected on that much. Mm. And it can open up a whole dialogue of kind of intentionality and who you want to be with yourself. And one of the ways it can lead is towards compassion or kindness, but that's really emerges from that question of who do you want to be? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. You can imagine someone who doesn't care too much about the shame piece of it. Although I find it hard to imagine, but it's imaginable. It's good to be open up to the possibility. I love ACT. I love this perspective. I don't even know if you would call that a perspective taking exercise, but ACT has all these unexpected little twists. Like it reminds me of the feared eulogy. Like a lot of people think about the eulogy exercise. Like, what do you want people to say at your funeral? But, you know, what are you worried? Like, what is the feared outcome if you kept on going to avoidance or things like that. It, to me, it emphasizes the role of choice that you have capabilities when you reflect on the range of potential options that there, you have a lot of capabilities to make choices about the type of actions you want to engage in and the values you choose. Yeah, actually in our first study of our first randomized trial, trying to help people with shame around substance use, we used that feared eulogy exercise with some of the groups and maybe try to pull together a few of these strands, if that's okay. Of course, yeah. If you have something else. No, so, that's so this study was a study of, we call internalized stigma. At the core of internalized stigma, I would say is shame. Of the sense that you're not good enough, there's something wrong with you. And, and in this study, what we did is we were working with people who are just entering residential treatment. And so if we think about where people often are in that place, they're kind of either court ordered in or they're coming in on their own, they're often at a pretty low place in their life. Almost always, or most of the time at least, they're in a pretty pretty bad place. And often they are in one of those places where they have, they have hurt people, they have let people down, they have broken relationships, they have harmed their employers, they have not kept up with their commitments. They have, there are many ways where they've done these things that are kind of breaking the social bounds. And they're kind of in one of those places where shame in some at some level is kind of an appropriate behavior appropriate response because not for everybody but for many of the people who are kind of at that place they have done things that have kind of have caused a lot of harm and not out of choice but out of addiction and now they're in this place and the shame is this emotion that kind of fits in some level and then it's layered the stigma's layered on top of it of all of the addicts are bad when they're whatever that's another layer too but there's that also that piece where the shame is kind of like relevant and so many people they start going through early treatment they get off their substances and they they start to have groups and they're kind of interacting in a sober environment now and all these emotions are coming up anxieties and fears and one of the emotions that come up is shame and partially because of the stigma, but partially because they've done things that are the kinds of things that lead people to feel shame. And not that I'm glad they're feeling shame. I'm not trying to shame people, but that just it's an emotion that's natural in that context. Mm -hmm. And so in this work, what we did is we wanted people to be able to acknowledge the shame and have it as part of the recovery process, to be able to experience it, notice it, not have to run from it not have to flat retreat into positivity. You see sometimes this kind of like positive glow early in recovery. I've got it. I'm going to be fine. Nothing's going to blah, blah, blah. And part of that is for people can be this kind of pushing away the shame, pushing away the sense of failure or loss or various things. And so we wanted to give people the capacity or help them to be able to make space for shame as part of the journey. And so we did these groups where we worked on this. It's a pretty brief six-hour intervention, but six hours of groups we worked with this. In some of the groups, we did this exercise. So this wasn't in all the groups because it really depended upon where the group was a kind of a cohesive group. But in some of the groups where people kind of were getting along and felt like they were really working together, we would do this eulogy exercises, exercise where we would have one of the group members would volunteer. We kind of described the exercise they knew they were getting into. 
And one of the group members would volunteer to do this, this to kind of go through this exercise where they imagine that they died today. You died today, and people from their lives are going to come and talk about what it was like, just like what that person was like. And for many people, this is the feared eulogy because, right, they're at mm-hmm. this low ebb in their life. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, you're kind of like going to show up to what your society, like what your community thinks, what you're of you at some level. Very brave and beautiful for the people who are willing to do this and wanted to do this, choose to step into it. Very brave and beautiful and painful thing to do. Not coerced, just you know, for them willingly. And then we would have, okay, so if it was me, who, who's going to be there? My mom, my brother, my best friend. And we pick those three people. And then someone from the group like role plays each of them, going to set up this funeral. Here's the body. And we have them come up and then tell me what's that person going to say. And then we kind of have them say it. And then the person plays it back and sort of, so we go through this exercise of the person kind of showing up to the experiences of of how they failed, of how they've let people down or how they, and it's very painful and they're supported by the group. The whole group there is there with them. We're trying to help them to show up to that, to acknowledge it, not to get down on themselves, to beat themselves up, to, to kind of berate themselves, but to acknowledge this is what it's like. This is the pain of my life. This is what hurts. And this is also what matters to me because inside that place of where they've let people down is what matters to them is what really is important. And then we do a second round where they get to say the person, those same people come back and they say, okay, now we want you to imagine them saying what they would say if you were able to turn things around. So let's say you're able to turn things around coming out of this process and live well for the next five years. What would that person say? And then Mm -hmm. they kind of come up and the people say, what that would be. My son, I'm so proud of him. He did this and that, and now we're closer and whatever. And so they get to sort of feel also that kind of sense of what might it be like if they were able to stay aligned with what really matters and what they really care about and make some contact with that. So it's like the shame and the failure and the loss is kind of right up next to the meaning and the what really matters. And we try to help them to kind of be able to hold both of those so that they don't have to retreat into addiction mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. kind of remove themselves from the pain of that. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that was one of the exercises that we did in that exercise, in that study that I think was pretty powerful for yeah. some people. That's a lovely and a great illustration of some of these principles we've been discussing. For me, it really drives home the notion that there's uh, purpose and pain. Suffering is not a problem in and of itself. And it can be a powerful signpost toward our most deeply held values, not just something to fix or modify so that we can get to the blithe, happy state. But Jason, this has been a really great time. I know you have to jump pretty soon. So I want to respect your time, but I wanted to thank you for all your work. This business model that I didn't even know about sounded very inspiring for folks that I think are frankly, like sickened by the American healthcare system and also might have problems with the current academic system, but also just for all the work you've done to translate these ACT principles and all the writing you've done. It's helped me personally tremendously in my clinical work and also just my own work on some of these topics, my own personal practices. So I really appreciate it. Before you go, do you have any parting words or requests to the audience or any other final thoughts you wanted to slip in here? Yeah. I. I want people to know that there are people out there who care. If you find yourself or you have a loved one who's caught up in shame and that sense of feeling separate and disconnected, that that's part of that. There are good people out there who care. And I've had times in my life, like this is partly a personal thing for me as well. I've had times in my life where I felt really disconnected and much of my life I lived that place and really ultimately kind of the returning to connection and community came through relationships and there are people out there who are good people and who are capable of connecting with you and it may be kind of take a route and it may take time and effort and twists and turns but that that possibility of kind of feeling 
connected with people and not caught up in that place of separation is possible. And yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to put that, put that message out there. I was just feeling it as we're having our conversations. Well, thanks, Jason. I appreciate you taking the time to connect with us, to connect with me, all the work you do academically or writing-wise to find other ways of fostering those types of not just like monodirectional information transfer, but connection and conversation. So I had hoped that we would get to psychedelics. Maybe people had seen your name and I hope we get there, but hopefully I can get you back for a round two at some point. Maybe we can go into a little bit of that. Yeah. uh, For listeners, I'm doing some of my newest research is on psychedelic assisted therapy, specifically MDMA assisted therapy with social anxiety disorder in particular. But that, that also has to do with shame and kind of feeling like you're not good enough or inferior. So it has that kind of core component that's shared. And uh, yeah, hoping to see if those sort of things might be helpful again to reach people in the separate and dark places and help them to find a place of connection and a place where they be friendlier with themselves and not have to feel like they're set apart from others. So, but thanks for having me on the show. I've, I've enjoyed being here and uh, talking to you, Carl, and luck with the good luck with the podcast going forward. All right. Thanks, Jason. That's my interview with Jason Luoma. I hope you enjoyed it. So we talked about a bunch that I will link to in the show notes, this feared eulogy exercise, loving kindness, in particular, this actwithcompassion.com resource. And then of course, Jason's publications, especially those on addiction and shame. So check the show notes for the links and you'll find all of that over at carlericfisher.com. And once again, over there on my website, you can sign up for my email list and immediately get a free guide I made about the many paths of recovery and stay up to date with latest show notes, episodes, other writings, and particularly this series of longer form posts I'm going to start publishing in January. So you can find all of that over at carlericfisher.com. And finally, if you like this show, please do help me get the word out by subscribing on your podcast player, leaving a rating and review, and sending this episode to just one other person you think would benefit. This really helps other listeners find the show. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you again soon. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It is not medical or clinical advice. The content is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have questions, please consult a medical professional. Conflicts of interest are an important topic in addiction and recovery. For now, the show is just me bringing these conversations to you ad-free for their own sake. I do have a list of disclosures about my work and positions on my website, which I will keep updated.